You know, one of the really difficult reasons uh, my grandmother's death was so difficult for me in October of 1998, you've heard me speak about her a great deal, is that she was my prayer warrior. She prayed for me every day. She prayed, in fact, for the entire family every day, and she prayed for her church every day. She was a prayer warrior. She taught me how to pray. She really did. And I'm still a novice at prayer, but she taught me what I do know about prayer. And I've told you the story of how every time we would get together, we would get on our knees, and we would pray, and she would ask the Lord to give me a wife. You know, she was so concerned that I wasn't going to have a... Uh, a godly wife, and we buried her on October the 24th, and I met Heather on October the 27th. She prayed her in. I was teaching, <laughs> teaching Bible study on Wednesday night, and, and uh, three days after we buried my grandmother, Heather comes walking into the Bible study, and uh, she never saw the fruits of her prayers, but uh, there was fruit nonetheless. And one of the stories I told at her funeral... Uh, that's one of my favorites about her prayer is that she called me one day. I was living in at home. I had just graduated from college. I knew at this point that I, I didn't want to coach. Those guys had burned me out at the University of Alabama. And so I was in an interview process with a company, and in particular a man named Victor Altamirano. And he was supposed, he told me, I'm going to call you back and we're going to set up another set of interviews. Just wait by the phone. That was before cell phones. And this was actually in 92. And my grandmother called me up one day and she said, I, I need you to go to Mobile with me. Uh, my daughter, Marcia, her, my aunt, uh, her one-year-old son, Luke, is sick and she needs some help. And I said, well, Mamo, I can't go with you because I'm expecting a call from this Victor Altamirano for, a, for another set of interviews. And I said, but I haven't heard from him. And I said, I'll give him another day. And if I haven't heard from him by tomorrow, I'll go with you to Mobile. Well, I never heard from him. We went to Mobile. And uh, about two days later, we were on our knees praying, as we often did. It was at lunchtime. And the phone began to ring at my aunt's house in Mobile. And back then, you had these voice-recorded messages, you know. And I could hear my dad on the recording. And he said... Brian, um, you need to call me. Um, Victor Altamirano has called the house and wants to talk to you. And I'll give you the number. I called Dad. He gave me the number. And when he gave me the number, I recognized it was a mobile number. I said, I wasn't going to do that. I said, every time. never works. Um, Jimmy Swaggart complains about how much I cry. Uh, uh, um, so anyway, I received this mobile number and I said, he's in mobile. So I called him at this mobile number because he was based in Birmingham. And uh, he said, Brian, he said, I know this is late notice, but could you get the mobile tomorrow? I said, uh, Victor, you're not going to believe this. I'm already in Mobile. And he said, well, you didn't happen to bring a suit, did you? I need you to work in the field with one of my reps. I said, yes, I brought a suit for church. And I believe that prayer 
birthed all of that. I mean, God is in control. He used his prayer. And, and even as we are praying on our knees, uh, that came about. And so when she died, I lost my prayer warrior. Indeed, my main prayer warrior, my advocate to the Father, my chief advocate to the Father. Or did I? Did I? Our text would tell us otherwise today. It would tell us otherwise. Jesus, as I said, is concluding the Lord's Supper meal. And he is, in effect, giving his final teaching to his disciples before the cross. This has been called the, the farewell discourse, if you will. We will look at this part of it, and the next time after Easter, we'll look at the end of it. But at this point, he is in mortal danger. Uh, John 13, verse 30 tells us that at this point, Judas has slipped out. Towards the end of the meal, Judas has slipped out, and he has gone to get the religious leaders to inform them where Jesus is, okay? In fact, if you look over in verse 53, Jesus tells those religious leaders just a few minutes later, he says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. The power of darkness, the hour of the power of darkness has come. And so he is in mortal danger at this point. In less than 24 hours, Jesus will be dead. And the disciples were in danger as well. And their enemy was the dangerous, most dangerous of all, the devil. And they didn't even realize it. They didn't even realize it. And I would submit to you this morning that we too are in that same danger. Unless we find our safety in the advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I have as the title of your, our sermon today, uh, Jesus, our great advocate. What is an advocate? An advocate is someone who comes alongside to help. In fact, Jesus is described as our advocate in verse John, chapter 2, verse 1. It means to speak, to plead, to argue in favor of another. And that's what Jesus does. He speaks, he pleads, he argues as our advocate in favor of those who are his. Believers, those who've repented of their sins and who have believed in Him, who have committed their lives to Him, who have come to God the Father through Him. And our text today just gives us one point about this advocate. And that one point is this. Jesus' advocacy for us is the ground of both our faith and our faithfulness. Jesus' advocacy for us is both the ground of our faith and our faithfulness. Look with me in verse 31. Again, this debate has taken place. Incredible debate. It's, it's taken place so many times. We saw it in Luke 9. It's, it, it takes place in Mark 9 and in Matthew 20. And here, just after he has spoken about the blood of the, of the covenant that will be spilled for the salvation of sinners... They engage in this debate about who's the greatest. And he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, Luke is the only gospel that records these words to Peter. And so we need to take note of these today. 
Now, at this point, Satan has already possessed one disciple. Judas is possessed. He is the son of perdition. We read that earlier, didn't we, in John 17. It, had been, it would have been better if he had not been born. And here was a man who followed Jesus religiously for three years. And yet, he's now possessed by the devil. It's very likely he's not even aware he's possessed. Okay? Uh, Satan is very content with being anonymous. All right? Now, it's interesting that he uses... Peter's pre-Christian name here. He has named him Peter, which means rock or stone. Peter will be the first among equals. He will be the first, if you will, among the apostles. He will be the one who preaches Pentecost. He's, he's the leader, if you will. And so he's addressing this man, but he describes him with his pre-Christian name, Simon, Simon. Now, why would he do that? I believe it's intentional. I believe that... In just a few minutes, maybe an hour or two, Simon is going to revert back to his pre-Christian behavior before he uh, followed Jesus, before he threw down his nets and followed Jesus. And I think Jesus is reminding him of his frailty and his utter weakness, okay? It's kind of like in Genesis when you see Jacob, one moment, described as Jacob, the hill snatcher, and the next moment, Uh, As Israel, his new name, the name given to him by the covenantal God. Well, Simon is being given, he's being reminded of his old name because of his weakness, of his frailty, and of what's going to happen in the next couple of hours. Now, as a side here, uh, Jesus' awareness of Satan's purposes here. This demonstrates supernatural knowledge of what has been called divine counsels. Divine counsels where you have Satan actually somehow in the heavenlies, in this council, this conversation with God the Father. We don't want to press that too far because there's mystery to that. But at this point, the twelve, the disciples don't even know Satan's activity in this. They have no clue. Now think about this. Satan is near. I mean, he is very near Jesus' most intimate followers. He is there. And they don't even know it. They're not even aware of it. And since the garden, Satan has studied the hearts of humankind. And he knows how to come to us as an angel of light. He knows. In fact, when you consider the fact Hebrews 2.9 says that we're made lower than the angels. What does that mean? Angels are constitutionally superior to humans. Now, we're the image of God. That makes us distinct. There's a nobility to humankind because angels are not created as the image of God. We are. But they are constitutionally superior to us. They're more intellectual. They're smarter. And 2 Peter 2.11 says they're mightier and more powerful than humans. Okay? Now think about that. Satan, who was the chief of them all, was able to deceive what Revelation 12 verse 4 seems to say, one-third of the angels. One-third of the angels who are smarter, who are constitutionally superior to us, he was able to deceive them in rebelling against God. And for thousands of years, he has worked at his craft 
Satan knows how to come as an angel of light. And these guys are completely unaware of it. And the closest analogy we have at this point is when Satan came to God about Job in Job chapter 1 and 2. And he seeks permission to test Job just as he is seeking permission to test Peter and the other apostles. Now, what does he mean here when he says he wants to sift you like wheat? Well, wheat was sifted through a, a, a sieve, okay? And you would shake it. You would shake the sieve and the wheat would kind of would, would be separated from the chaff. Satan, though, wants to, to shake us. He wants to shake the apostles. He wants to shake Peter and destroy him. He wants to, he wants to cause him to fall. Now, what's interesting here, and you don't pick it up in the English. You may have a footnote if you have a, a good uh, study Bible or reference Bible. Uh, when he uses the word you here, he says, Satan demanded to have you. That's plural. So he's speaking to all the disciples. You could say in the South, he wants to have y'all. He wants to have you all. In fact, he uses that plural twice. He is demanded to have you all. That he might sift you all like wheat. And so this goes beyond Peter. He wants them all. And maybe it's this prideful conversation that was provoked uh, by Satan himself. Who knows? In fact, in Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 26, Jesus says, You will all fall away because of me this night. And so Satan wants Peter, but he's not content with Peter. He wants all the disciples. Satan is never satisfied. And he doesn't know who the true believer is. He doesn't. Because there's many who make profession. There are many who start out well. That's the parable of the soils. So he's coming after us all. He wants to destroy us all. He doesn't know those who have truly been regenerated. Because we can have outward, apparent fruit that's no fruit at all. So he's coming after us all. This isn't new. It goes back to the garden. You know, in the garden, when, when the serpent comes to Adam and Eve, the serpent is the first one to ask the first recorded question in history. You know what that first recorded question is? Hath God really said? He questions the word of God. And that's his method. And then the next statement is where he questions the first doctrine. He says, you will not surely die. The doctrine of the divine judgment is questioned by the devil in the garden. And that's his way. And this explains why Peter will later say, be sober-minded, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, 1 Peter 5, 8, walks about like a roaring lion. Seeking whom he may devour. Peter had experienced some of that, that later on that night. Now here's the question. Do you know what kind of danger you might be in this morning? I mean, it's a legitimate question. Uh, Paul says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Do you know what kind of danger you could possibly be in this morning? I mean, I think of all the numerous people, numerous people that I have known who started out well. To use Southern Baptist language, on fire for the Lord. And then time of testing and temptation 
and struggle. They fall by the wayside. I've seen it at seminary. I've seen it at Boyce. People who have all the earmarks of the new birth. But then the struggles come. It reminds me of Luke chapter 8 again, the parable of the soils. You know, it's interesting there. Jesus speaks of the, the seed that is planted among the soils. And he talks about this kind of seed that fell among the path and was trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. And then he interprets what he means. He says in Luke eight twelve, the ones along the path are those who have heard. That is, they've received it. They heard it. They, they confessed it. They professed it. They had all the earmarks of the new birth, of a true convert, a disciple. He says, then the devil comes. You see the spiritual warfare involved? Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts. Now, that doesn't mean they're not culpable. You remember Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. Well, that's just bad theology. We're always culpable. But we open ourselves up to the devil by our sin and our lack of repentance, our lack of faith. He says he takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Well, that appears to be his method. And why is the devil not creative? Why does he continue to use the same methods over and over again? Because they work. They're very effective. And one of the most naive and dangerous things would be to think that you're not in danger. That you're not vulnerable. In fact, that's a mistake that Peter himself is going to make. But here's the good news. For the believer, even in that danger, we have the best news imaginable. And we see that news Kind of implied in verse 32. He says, the devil, Satan has demanded to have you. But, don't look past that word. But, it's a glorious word. But, in other words, verse 31 is not ultimate reality. Verse 32 is for the believer. But, I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. We're so familiar with these texts that we yawn at them. We should be up celebrate. We should be dancing at this point. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now here the you is singular. He goes from the plural to the singular because Peter is going to be subject to a unique and peculiar attack from the devil that very night. But it doesn't mean that he's not praying for all of them. Now, what does it mean here in verse 32 when he says, I've prayed uh, that your faith may not fail? Uh, the, the word faith here does not refer to our doctrine, though doctrine is crucial. Our theology is crucial. This is speaking to faithfulness. If we have faith, the fruit of faith is faithfulness, okay? So he's speaking to faithfulness. He is praying for Peter that he would not lose his faithfulness. In fact, the word here, fail, it's a very interesting word, eclipse. What does that sound like? Eclipse. Our word, our English word comes from this word, um, 
eclipse. Okay? I am praying that your faith will not be eclipsed. Uh, Jesus is praying that Peter's faith and his faithfulness would not utterly disappear. Now, we know that Peter's going to be faithless, isn't he? All right, later on, just in a couple of hours, Peter's going to be faithless, but he will not utterly lose his faith. That's the key. We're going to see prompt repentance. Verse 62, Peter will repent of his sin, indicating that Jesus' prayer is answered, all right? His failure is going to be temporary. It's not going to be ultimate. You know, as I was thinking about this passage this week, the continued existence of grace in the heart of a believer is a miracle. I mean, it really is. The continued existence of grace is a miracle because our enemies are mighty, aren't they? I mean, we have enemies coming at us from every angle. The world... The flesh and the devil, they come at us every day. Our enemies are mighty and our strength is small. Let's be honest. Our strength is very small. I mean, the world is filled with temptation and snares and our hearts are utterly weak. It's a miracle that grace remains. And when you look at the math, On paper, it seems utterly impossible that we could persevere in the faith. Especially when you're going through the difficulties, you're going through the trials, when you're in the valley. It seems utterly impossible. And it looks impossible for Peter. But our text explains Peter's safety. Peter has an advocate. Peter has an advocate to the Father. And Jesus adds... That when Peter turns again, which, what does that indicate? Peter's going to fall. Peter's going to sin, okay? When he turns again, strengthen your brother. This turning back refers to repentance. What is repentance? Well, repentance is grounded in contrition. Now, there's a worldly kind of sorrow. Judas experienced that. He was sorrowful because of the consequences, the way it made him feel. That's called attrition. It's worldly sorrow. I am sorrowful that I've lost my name. I am sorrowful that I have been found out. I am sorrowful for all the consequences that I'm going to experience because of my bad mistake. That's worldly sorrow. It's called attrition. Repentance is grounded in contrition. Two different religions. Worldly sorrow, godly sorrow. Contrition is a result of brokenness because we have sinned against God, against you, and you only have I sinned, the psalmist said. So repentance is contrition, confession out of that contrition, and change. It's turning away. That is what repentance is. It's a work of God's grace whereby the sinner, out of a true sense of his or her sin, does with grief and hatred over his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. Jesus prays for Peter's repentance. He said, I pray that when you turn back, in other words, 
The question's not whether he's going to repent. We know Peter will repent. Why? Not because we read verse 62 later on. We know Peter will repent because he has an advocate. He has an advocate to the Father. And let me tell you, let me give you a very glorious truth out of that. When Jesus prays, when Jesus prays, God always answers his prayers. Always. Let me give you a proof text for that. In John 11, it happened just a few days earlier. He comes to the tomb of Lazarus. At this point, Lazarus stinketh. All right? And he's been in the tomb for four days. And before Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave, it says in John 11, verse 41, they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes. And he said, Father... I thank you that you've heard me. Now, what does it mean that he heard him? Not just that he, like I hear my children. It means the father responds to the son. And he always responds to the son. Notice, I knew that you always hear me. Why does the father always hear the son? Because the son knows the will of the father. He says in John, I only do those things which I see the Father doing. They're on the same page. So every time Jesus prays, his prayers are answered. They're always answered. And he says, when you turn, when you turn, that is when you repent of what you're going to do tonight, I want you to strengthen your brothers. Jesus' prayer is that Peter would repent And strengthen. Now, what does that mean, strengthen your brothers? That's a verb that's used often in the New Testament. And primarily, it describes the process of helping other believers grow in the faith. Again, that's a responsibility each one of us has. Uh, God has saved us. We are God's workmanship, Ephesians 2.10. Created in Christ Jesus. That's new creation language. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do, we are called to strengthen our brothers, our sisters. In fact, that verb is going to be used by Peter later on. In 2 Peter 1 verse 12, where he speaks about the believers that he's addressing as being established in the truth. That's what it is. It's helping others be established in the truth. And it's going on here. Praise God it's going on here. And it's, and it's grassroots level. It's not just the pastor doing it. All right, we've got people here. We have what we call lay people. Some people don't like that term. It's just a lack of a better term. But we have lay people at the grassroots who are establishing one another in the faith. They're strengthening one another in the faith. That's what we're called to do. We're called to be disciples and we're called to make disciples. And we see it. We even have it on Tuesday nights here. And we have it going on in different homes. Uh, I'm just so grateful for that. that. And that is what Jesus commands Peter to do. And how Peter does this is, is fulfilled. We see it in Acts, don't we? We see him preaching Pentecost. We see him being the leader of the church. We see him taking the gospel to Samaria and to the Gentiles. We see Peter fulfilling this very thing. Satan cannot destroy Peter because Jesus intercedes for Peter. And Jesus is stronger. Jesus is stronger. Now, importantly here, 
Jesus didn't ask in this prayer any of the things we would probably have liked him to ask. All right? Um, And the reason for that is that we're typically not on the same page with Jesus. We would have had Peter or Satan or Jesus rather ask the father, would you pray that the devil would leave Peter alone? He didn't pray that. Would you ask the Father to give Peter health and comfort, ease, comfort and pleasure? He didn't ask that. That's the way we would have had Jesus intercede. But the reason Jesus doesn't intercede that way is because typically we're not on the same page with Jesus. Because we need to understand and we fail to understand the long process of personal transformation that is preparing us for eternity. And as a result, we would be surprised. I have a feeling, most of us, all of us, how Jesus intercedes for us. And he does. We'll see that in a moment. He intercedes for all of us as believers. We'd be shocked how he intercedes for us. Because our focus is on the moment. Our focus is on the temporary, if we are honest, not on his eternal process. Now, as we get older, it becomes more, I think, one of the real graces of growing old is that we come to think more and more about eternity. We come to think more about death. That's a grace. All right? Because in that, if you're a believer, you begin to more and more set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. But when you're young and vibrant, our focus is on the temporary, not the eternal. And therefore, we typically want relief. We typically want relief and release from the pressure and the pains of this life, don't we? We typically want relief and release, not rescue from self, not rescue from our sin. Now, Jesus' intercessions for us is going to ensure relief And release in eternity. We're guaranteed that. But in the here and now. Because none of us are sanctification graduates. None of us. None of us have arrived. We're all in the school of sanctification. Because none of us are sanctification graduates. Jesus is not committed to pray for your ease, comfort, and pleasure. He's not committed to pray for that. He didn't pray for Peter's ease, comfort, and pleasure. He is more committed to our eternal good than our temporal comforts. And he does this not because he's turned his back on you, but because he's turned his face towards you. Do you realize that? It's because he has turned towards you. He is utterly devoted to your eternal good. Because anything temporary is utterly vanity. It's just temporary. Temporal benefits, and just it's vanity. He is committed to your eternal good as a believer. And so it was with Peter. Now, Peter's going to sin. And God grieved, is grieved by sin. And Satan is going to be behind it in a very real sense. And it's very likely, I mean, uh, not likely, the Father could have prevented that encounter. But in the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God, He's even going to use 
Peter's sin. Okay? He's even going to use Peter's sin to sanctify Peter and to equip him for ministry. Because at this point, Peter's not broken. He's not broken. We're going to see that in just a moment. He is not broken. Until you're broken, you're not usable. And so he's going to use the, the, the Satan, the devil, like a puppet to break Peter. And when he is brought to that place of brokenness where he recognizes that he is utterly destitute apart from grace, apart from God's intercession in Jesus, he's not usable. But he's going to be broken. And in that brokenness, he's going to understand for the first time something about restoration and renewal, something about the grace of God. And it's only those who are usable in that sense. And so that's where Jesus has Peter. And that's why he only prays that his faith wouldn't fail. And Christ prays for us in a very likewise manner. What are some of the things he prays for? I, we could spend an entire sermon list. We don't have time. First John 2, 1. My ch- I write these things to you, dear children, so that you will not sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate to the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's one of the things he prays. God does not want us to sin. Sin eclipses his glory. And anything that eclipses his glory is detrimental to us. Sin is detrimental. You have this movement today where people say, I'm under grace, I have freedom, I have liberty. Well, if you're using that as a guise to live, you know, in a sinful manner, as a believer, trust me, the discipline of God is going to be very painful to you. He says, I write these things to you so that you will not sin. But if you do sin, if Brian sins, and he will sin, because 1 John says, if anyone claims to be without sin, he's a liar. If anyone claims to be without sin, he's a liar. And Brian has sinned, Father. But remember, his lack of righteousness is covered by my righteousness. Remember, the debt he owes you because of his sin has been paid in full. I paid it in full. When I cried, Tetelestai, it is finished. And you took the payment. And I know you took the payment because you raised me from the grave. So he prays for the forgiveness of sins. What else does he pray? John 17, that priestly prayer that we looked at briefly earlier. Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is praying. If you're a believer, Jesus is praying that God will sanctify you. And that's why this idea that you can be saved from the penalty of sin and there be no evidence of it in your life, it's nonsense. Because he's praying that you would be sanctified. Which means you will be sanctified if you're a believer. You will grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will be conformed to the likeness of Christ. And if that's not evidence in your life, I don't care what you confess or profess, you are not in Christ. He is praying that you would be sanctified. And then he goes on, and we don't have time for this, but John 17, 24, he prays that we would enter into his glory, that we would behold his glory, and we become what we behold. He is praying for our glorification. So he's praying for the forgiveness of sins. He's praying for our sanctification. He's praying for our glorification, and God always hears his prayers. Isn't that glorious? Well, at this point, 
Peter decides to inform Jesus that he's okay. He's set. He, he doesn't really need the prayer, it appears. He's already on board. Look with me in verse 33. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. It's almost like he's disregarding Jesus' prayers. Peter at the same time, and, and, and Peter is a paradox full of contradiction, all right? Because in one sense, he's, he's committing, you know, he's commending his love and devotion to Jesus, and it's true devotion. There's no doubt about that. But he's also overestimating who he is. And he's underestimating the power of warfare. But it also demonstrates that the reality of what Jesus is about to experience is setting in. This is the first time one of the disciples commits publicly to go down with the ship. He says, I'm going to go down with you. I am ready. I'm committed to go to both prison and to death. He is convinced that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And he's ready for that. But at this point, his confidence is entirely misplaced. That's the, he hasn't been broken yet. So his confidence is still in himself. He thinks he has something to offer. When you think you have something to offer, you haven't been broken yet. Okay? And that's where Peter is. In time, Peter's going to be broken. And out of that brokenness and out of that repentance... This commitment's going to come true. The book of Acts tells us numerous times that Peter was imprisoned for his faith. Acts 4, Acts 5, Acts 12. Tradition, reliable tradition tells us he was martyred. That he was crucified upside down on a cross because he said, I'm not worthy to die like my Savior, my Messiah. And so they turned him upside down. And crucified him on the cross. But at this point, Jesus is not impressed with Peter. You know why? Because he knows that if Peter's going to persevere, if Peter is going to have that commitment that he claims, it's only because of grace. It's not because some kind of moral superiority in Jesus. It's all of grace. It's because of Jesus' advocacy. Verse 34, he says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day till you deny three times that you know me. This tells us more than Jesus knew what was going to happen, because we certainly know that he does that. It's also going to be the means by which Peter repents. Because when the rooster crows later on, Peter is going to remember the word of Christ. And he's also going to remember Jesus saying, I am praying for you. And so as he remembers the word of Christ and he considers the advocacy of Jesus, it's going to bring him to the place of brokenness. And that's how repentance always works. Through the word of Christ. And we have, we have a, a more privileged position than Peter. Okay? Why? Because we're on the other side of the cross. We recognize that he does more than just intercede as a prayer warrior for us. He gave his life. 
And so when we remember the word of Christ, when we remember that he is praying for us, when we remember that he's laid down his life, that we might have the forgiveness of sins, the spirit of God brings repentance, brokenness. And that's how God brings that about through his mediation. Just a couple of passages to close. We'll do this briefly. Hebrews 7 is a very important verse in this regard. Listen to what Hebrews 7 tells us in verse 25. I think we have it up on the screen. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. What does that mean? That means he saves more than you from the penalty of sin. He's going to save you inside and out. The way you think, you know how you think. It's jacked up. You think bad thoughts about people. You think bad thoughts all the time. He's going to save you from the inside out. You, you love the wrong things. You hate the, the wrong things. Everything about you is sinful from the very core. He's going to save you to the uttermost. Okay, he's not just saving you from the penalty of sin. He's saving you from the power of sin. Why? It says those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, it's not just the cross and the resurrection that ensures your salvation. It's his intercession. And in fact, the entire chapter, Hebrews 7 was intended to communicate that Jesus is a better high priest. He's better than the high priest of the Old Covenant. The entire chapter is about that. The the priesthood of Aaron. And then he closes with this argument. Verse 23, why? The former priests were many in number. Why did they have to have so many priests? Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They kept dying. The advocates kept dying. How frustrating would that have been? But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. We have a high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. And then in Romans 8, as we close, Romans 8, 34, Paul is concluding this beautiful chapter on the glory of the gospel And he says, who is it he who condemns? Who can condemn you? It is Christ who died and furthermore is risen. Okay? Who sits at the right hand of God, who makes intercession, who is interceding for us. And that's why Paul could say, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's the glory of Jesus, our intercessor. I was thinking about this week, this glorious truth, and it has been so encouraging to me to reflect on this truth. I was reading Psalm 94, and in Psalm 94, the psalmist says, If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast, O Lord, held me up. Your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. And one of the principal means his steadfast love is communicated to us, one of the principal means by which he holds us up by his steadfast love is the advocacy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the question this morning. Is he your advocate? If he's your advocate, you have all the hope in the world. I don't care how little money you have in the bank or how bad your health is or how tough your job is. You have all the hope in the world if you have an advocate to the Father. If you don't have an advocate, I don't care how wealthy or healthy you are, you are hopeless. But you can come to him today. 
You can find your hope in the Advocate. <clears throat> you come to the Father through the Advocate. And you say, Father, I have sinned against you. I sin daily. I sinned every hour, every minute, and my sin deserves judgment. But I believe my advocate, Jesus Christ, has taken my punishment. And he was raised from the grave for my justification. And I want to believe him today. I want to commit my life to him. And if you do that, the Bible says you will be saved. And not only that, you have an advocate for all eternity. Let's stand and sing. And as we think about this glorious text, won't you respond to the Lord Jesus today? The Advocate.